Well, welcome to Crossroads Live Online. My name is Matt Manning, and I am the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And I'm so glad uh, that you are joining us as we wrap up this series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks called Being the Church. Now, before we kind of wrap all of this up, I actually want to take a few moments to talk about what's going to happen next week. Next week, we start a brand new message series, which happens to be one of our most popular message series that we do here at Crossroads Church called Ask Anything. And Ask Anything is a message where really you are the driver uh, of the series, where we open up the text line, you can see it there on the screen, uh, for you to submit questions to us, and then we have the opportunity uh, over a course of a couple of weeks to answer those questions, and those questions can really be about anything. They can be about the faith, they can be about church, they can be about the Bible, they can be about things that are going on in the world, what Trevor's favorite hot sauce is, whatever it might be, uh, you can uh, find, uh, send that text message uh, to us, that question to us, and that we'll get that. And so, uh, here's kind of the thing that's going on right now is that uh, for some of you, you've already sent questions to us, which in and of itself is amazing, maybe even a miracle. And the reason that I say that is because the slide that we've been using the last couple of weeks has actually had the wrong number on it, that a few of the numbers like were transcribed in that. And so get this, there's probably some dude somewhere in Colorado who's getting all of these deep like theological questions coming to him and he's like, what in the world? And maybe he's even answering them. I don't know. But we want you to join into the fun with the right number, all right? So if you want to shoot us a question, you can text uh, to the number, and this is the right number, 720-230-6865, all right? Whatever question you have, you can send it to there over the next couple of weeks. We'll take those questions, the questions that are most asked and the most prominent. Uh, we will answer three or four of those a week every Sunday as we gather together. And so, and here's the deal. So as we go about doing this, uh, that you can see maybe what the random dude, how he answered your question, but then Pastor Tim and myself over the next couple of weeks will get a chance to answer, and then you can compare which one is better, all right? And so we start that next week, and I'm going to let you know, the very first question uh, that came in, and we're going to answer it, I'm going to answer it next week, is this, is what is the church's stance on Black Lives Matter, all right? So you can look forward to that, as well as us answering many other questions over the next couple of weeks. Ask Anything starts next week, all right? Well, with that said, this week... We are uh, finishing up, wrapping up uh, our series called Being the Church. And in my opinion, it's been one of the most important and monumental series uh, that we've done in Crossroads in a long time. And the reason that I can say that is because 125 days ago, because of COVID-19, we had to shut the doors to our building. Admittedly, it's been a tough season. It's been a tough season for me. It's been a tough season for you. That almost collectively, that anybody who went to church, thought about going to church, was a part of a church. That almost immediately, there was this sense of loss and this feeling of loss. And the questions started to come. Every single one of us started to ask the questions and began to wonder, like, what do you, how do you be church? How do you do church when there's no building? Like, like what does it look like to, to be the church when you can't be in the building? And the sad thing is, is that as we've watched culture over these last four or five months now, is that the Big C Church, the Big C Church in the U.S. and really the Big C Church in the world has become quite paralyzed because the doors of our buildings are shut. And so the whole emphasis of this series has been, what if this wasn't an accident? Like, what if this wasn't an accident? And it really grew out of this conversation that I had with Tiffany Dunn, our connections director here, that she's in charge of community groups and making sure that people are in community here at Crossroads Church. She's, she's awesome. And we were having this conversation, and she looked at me and she said, Matt, we can't think of this as an accident. Like, God in his sovereignty, 
saw it fit that every church, every door of every building closed on the exact same day in America. Look, those are some deeply profound words. And if I truly believe that, that God is in charge, like, like that God has the whole world in his hands, like, like if I really believe that, and that God is working out everything for his glory and for our good, then I can't just believe that this is some accident or, or the state or the government simply overreaching, that I have to view this as an act of God. And the truth of the matter is, is that as we live through this COVID-19 season, however long it is, the reality is for us is that we look a whole lot more like the church of the first century that we read about the Bible than we have ever been before in our entire history. And the reason that I say that is because when it comes to the church, the early church that was in the first century, that the early church did not have a building to meet in until 260 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet it thrived. And here's the really cool thing for us, is that now some 2,000 years later, that we have the same opportunity given by God himself to discover what it was that made that early church thrive and to bring an answer to the question of what does it mean to be the church when we are not in the church building? That we get to discover that together. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've tried to answer that question and we've looked at three unique characteristics that really made up the early church and what we believe uh, helped in terms of its thriving in those early days. And over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've, we've looked specifically at three of those. The first one was this, is that the early church was determined to serve. That they weren't just going to sit back passively, but they looked for ways to engage their community and connect within their community and to serve their community, their neighborhoods, their friends, the places in which they lived. And then the second week we looked at another characteristic, and that was that the early church was bent on developing friendships, both with people in the community, within the church, and also with people outside the church. And they realized very early on that the faith that we hold to is a relational faith, first with God and then with each other. And that we are meant to be friends and to be in community with one another, whether the people in our lives ever believe the same way we do or not. And then the third thing that we looked at, the third characteristic that we looked at is this idea of, of discovering their story. That the early church was, was just amazing at discovering the story of, of people in their lives. That Jesus and his followers demonstrated this time and time again. In fact, last week, Pastor Chris gave a great message on Zacchaeus. And, and we saw that Zacchaeus is this wee little man, but with a big, big story. And that part of his big, big story is that he probably felt very distant from God because of some of the decisions that he had made in his life. And yet one day his entire world was turned upside down. Totally upside down because Jesus engaged him. And they had dinner where Jesus heard about his story, what was going on in his life, and it changed the trajectory of his life for the rest of his life. And the fourth thing that we're going to look at actually today is that when it came to the early church, in many ways, in very robust ways, that they displayed the gospel story with every opportunity within their lives. And so as we kind of land this plane today, we're going to do so by looking at a passage of Scripture in the Bible in Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at just three verses, verses 14, 15, and 16. Now, if you're brand new to the Bible, one of the things that I just need you to know as we jump into this is that the book of Matthew, or the gospel of Matthew, this is, this is really the story of Jesus' life, that this is one of the most earliest accounts of Jesus' life. 
that it was written some 30 or 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the author of the book is a man by the name of Matthew, and he was one of the apostles of Jesus, or a disciple of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' best friends. And for those first 30 or 40 years, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, what was going on in the culture is that these 12 disciples, these apostles, would share the stories of Jesus and the teachings that they had memorized orally. That they were going all around the country, uh, countryside, and they would teach this, and tell the stories of Jesus orally. After 30 or 40 years, all of these disciples are becoming old in their age. And what they did is they took their eyewitness accounts. And what Matthew did is he took all of these stories and all these teachings of Jesus and wove them together in an amazing book. Mark, Luke, and John did the very same thing. And one of those teachings of Jesus has huge relevance on us today, particularly pertaining to what we're talking about. And it begins for us in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14. That where Jesus is standing before this huge crowd on a hillside in Galilee, and he says these words to them. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, if you were to sit down and to read the stories of Jesus' life, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it wouldn't take you very long to begin to see one of the major symbols that runs throughout all four of the Gospels is this understanding of light. And when it comes to light, and particularly darkness, we kind of have this basic understanding that when it comes to light and darkness, what's really being talked about is good and evil. Like, we all get that, right? I mean, you don't have to teach your little kid to be scared of the dark. In fact, some of the greatest stories that we have in our culture are stories about light and darkness, right? I mean, who will ever forget, like, the classic story of Star Wars, right? That moment where, where Darth Vader cuts off Luke Skywalker's arm, and he looks at Luke, and he says, if you just knew the power of the dark side. Join me. And Luke looks back at him holding his like limp arm and he says, no, I'm never going to join you. Obi-Wan said, you killed my daddy, right? And then Vader looks at Luke and he says, Luke, I am your father. Dun, 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 right? I mean, classic story. Or maybe if you're like my age, that the uh, Christopher Nolan Batmans were like a big thing for me. Like I love those stories. And I remember like the third movie, the, uh, the final, the Dark Knight Return, or the Night, Dark Knight Rises. It's a story about good and evil between Batman and Bane. And there's this classic moment where Batman and Bane are fighting for the first time, and Batman cuts all of the lights, and, and Bane looks at him and he says, you think that the darkness is your ally, but I was born in the dark, that the shadows betray you because they are for me. They belong to me, right? And we're like, oh, you know, light and darkness. Like at some level, culturally, we understand this, that we get what this is all about, and yet today, what I want to do is I want to paint a little bit bigger picture than just our basic understanding of light and darkness and the way that it plays out in the Bible. Because Jesus is doing something bigger here. He's doing something, something more here. See, this phrase or this statement, light of the world, is happening in the middle of a sermon that Jesus is giving that we call the Sermon on the Mount. That one day he comes to this hillside and 5,000 or more people gather to hear what he has to say. And as he begins this, this sermon, he begins it with this phrase that he uses over and over again. In English, it's, it's blessed are you. 
It's the Greek word makarios. Makarios. It's simply, it's simply translated for us, blessing, or maybe in your Bible, it's translated happiness. In fact, it's a very difficult word for us to translate from the Greek and to the English. It's, it's just a hard word for us to get. And many times when we see blessed are you, almost immediately we think about blessing or God. Whether you're a Christian or not, you think of the blessing of God. But don't do that here because that's not what Makarios is all about. The makarios is not about God's blessing on you. That's a different Greek word. Makarios really may be best translated as, translated as congratulations or celebration. That it was a word of joy and, and celebration. And so that the way that they would use this common word in their culture is that they would say something like this. That if you had a new baby, if you had just had a new baby boy say. That they would say makarios. Like, like blessed are you, happy are you, congratulations on this newborn. Or maybe you came home and, and you told your spouse that you had a promotion at work. Your spouse's response would be, Makarios, like joy, celebration. Like, like let's go out to dinner or maybe let's lower the bar a little bit. Maybe you say you haven't had a date in a long time and you got a date, right? It would be like, Makarios, like woo, like this is happening. Like it was, it was a this word of celebration, of congratulations, of, of great joy. Which makes Jesus' use of the word on the Sermon on the Mount all the more curious. Because as he says, makarios, congratulations, celebration, the list that follows isn't things that we would typically celebrate. He says, makarios is the poor in spirit. Makarios is the meek. Makarios are those who mourn. Makarios goes on and on and on until he finally gets to makarios are those who are persecuted and mocked because of their faith. And there's something about that last one. We read it and we go, <laughs> can you roll that back, Jesus? Like, like can you go back for us? Like, like, I don't know if you understand what this word means. I don't know if you're using it right. Like, what in the world? Like, I can think of very few things that would be more sinister, more dark, worse than facing persecution, mocking because of my faith, to watch my family and my friends go through that. Like, like there's no makarios in there. There's no celebration there. Like when my friends and my family and myself, when we face real physical peril because of our faith, and Jesus looks at all of these people gathered, 5,000 or more, sitting on this hillside, and he says, persecution's coming, mocking's coming. And when it does, makarios... Celebration, congratulations. Now one of the interesting things is that when we open the pages of the scriptures is that it never hides how dark this world is. That Matthew, the author of this gospel, knows the depth of darkness in this world. That he experienced darkness at a rate that, that none of us, no matter what your story is, could relate to. I mean, the Roman occupation of Israel... It was hard. It was brutal. That when Jesus was born, that every single baby, every single baby boy, two years or older, was slaughtered, thrown into the river. That it was more than likely that Matthew had an older brother that experienced that fate. And that as he grew up, he'd have to hear the story. His mom recount that story through her tears time and time again, how she led her baby boy to the, to the banks of the river and threw him in. Matthew knew darkness. That by the time he was in his late teens, early 20s, he had devoted his life to, to following Jesus. And just as things were starting to ramp up, and as just as the, the disciples were starting to wonder what God was up to, he watches one of his best friends, Judas Iscariot, sell Jesus out for 
for a handful of silver. As he enters into to becoming an old man some 30 or 40 years later, as he's watched three or four of those best friends, those disciples, those apostles, die terrible, terrible deaths. That undoubtedly Matthew would have been around Israel when the Roman general Vespirian ripped through Israel, flooding hundreds of thousands of Israelite nationals into the slave system of Rome. That Matthew knew the darkness of this world. That he saw the chaos, the destruction, the heartache. That he knew the darkness. And yet through all of that, through all of that, he never lost his faith. And some 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus, he sits down to to write this gospel. And he's remembering back on the teachings of Jesus. Macarius are those who understand the darkness that's in this world. And then the very next words, the very next words in the Sermon on the Mount are these. You are the light of the world. That you are the light in this dark world. Now typically, if you're a believer, if you've been in church, typically when we read this passage, we focus on light illuminating and extinguishing the darkness. And that's good and inapplicable. But there's something else that Jesus is alluding to here. That every single person sitting on that hill would have understood almost immediately. But for us, we we don't see it as quickly. And so let me help you see it. And I'm going to help you see it by reading Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7 to you. The great prophet Isaiah writes these words on behalf of God. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now listen, this is is big. This is Yahweh. This is God. And he goes to the the Hebrew people and he says, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And as he speaks those words over them, that, that first and foremost, he's giving them identity. Listen, anytime the creator... Creator God tells you that, that you're his, man, that is something cool to hold on to. Whether you're a Hebrew people then or for us today, we can hold on to that. That's our identity, that, that God is our God, that we are his people as believers in Jesus. That that's a truth, that's an identity in us. But then he looks to Israel and he says, not only am I going to tell you what your identity is, but I'm also going to share with you what your essence, that this is what you're to be all about. And he looks at them and he says that you are the light of the nations. In other words, Israel, that you exist, you exist in order to know me, to worship me, to be in relationship with me. And as all of that happens in your life, that you are to be a light to the other nations so that they see what it is to know me and to love me and to worship me and to be in relationship with me. Israel, your essence, your identity is to be light to everyone else. And the question that then falls on us is this, is was Israel successful in that? Did Israel do a good job with that? And the answer to that is no. That if you read the Old Testament, you know that they crashed and burned, that they failed miserably time and time again. That somewhere along the way that they confused this idea of of them being God's people as some kind of elite status. And in doing so, they kind of walled themselves off from the rest of the world. And as they walled themselves off from the rest of the world, the rest of the world never saw 
what it looked like to fully worship Yahweh, to fully be in relationship with him. You fast forward to the New Testament, and Jesus comes on the scene. And as we read through the Gospels, all four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, go to great lengths to demonstrate that Jesus is the light of the world. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew directly quotes Isaiah 42. It's as if he's, he's looking at his audience, the people who would be reading this. And he's saying, look, 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 Jesus is the light. Don't miss this. Jesus is the light. And then Jesus takes that understanding one chapter later. And as he's standing on this hill looking at all of these people who are, who are wanting to follow him, he looks at them and he says, now you are the light in the world. That you are the light. See, what Matthew wants us to see is this, is that Israel was supposed to be the lights, and yet they failed. And when Jesus shows up, we're, we're told that Jesus is the light, that he comes and he, and he sets things back in order. He resets everything, that, that he's the light. He puts it back on track, and then he turns to his followers. And he says to you and me that you are the lights, that your identity, your essence is to bring the lights into the community in which you live. See, this is the story of God. This is the, the story that's been going on long before you or I was born, long before this church existed, long before our nation existed. Listen, God wants those who are furthest from him, in the outskirts, as Isaiah says, in the dungeons and in the prisons, that he wants those people to come into loving relationship with him. And he says the way that that happens, the way that they find out about who I am, is through you. Because you are the lights of the world. I mean, that's powerful. And then he gives us two illustrations, two examples of how light works and what it's to mean in our life. Like, like what's this to look like in our life? And first he says that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That this is how it worked in the ancient world. That if you were a traveler, particularly traveling at night, that the cities up on the hills in Israel, that these little towns and these little cities, that they would light up at night. And they would be like your navigational system to help you navigate through the dark valley. Now, this story, this passage became so real to me when I visited Israel for the first time some 12 years ago with Pastor Kim. That we were traveling through the night, through the valley. The Mediterranean Sea was on our west. The hills of the mountains were on our east. And as we were driving through the dark, I was looking at the mountains. And on top of almost every single mountainside was a city. And on these cities were, were just lit up. They were just illuminated. And as I sat there and looked at it, I was like, this is it. This is, this is what Jesus was talking about. They were like little beacons of light sitting up, like a lighthouse going, like, this is the direction, this is the way you go, this is, this is me directing you through the valley. And as I sat on the bus, I was like, this is what Jesus meant, that Jesus looks at you and me and he says, the nature of what it looks like to be in relationship with me is that you are directing people like a lighthouse through the darkness, the dark valley of this world. Like, like that's what you're to do, that you're to point them to me as they walk through the darkness of this world because remember, the world is dark. And then he gives us a second illustration, a second example of how light works. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. 
The imagery that Jesus is using is totally first century here. That for us, we need to imagine kind of a room with no windows that's completely dark. And then imagine like a clay terracotta with a single candle. And you walk in and you light that candle. And as soon as you light that candle, it illuminates the room like you can see all around. And what Jesus' point is, is this, is that he says it would be absolutely, it would make no sense. It would be absolutely ridiculous to take a basket after you lighted that candle, lit that candle, and then hide the light. Like, nobody would do that. Like, it just wouldn't make sense. And then Jesus looks at us, and he says, nor does it make sense for you to have the light, to have me in your life, a relationship with me, and for you to do things in your life that hides me. You are the light. And what we come to understand and see is that to be made the light of the world is a call to the church, not the building, but the people to become visible. That Jesus goes about here destroying all attempts to make invisible what it means to walk with him. He says, you can't go down that road, that you are the light, that you are to display the gospel story with every opportunity that you have. Over the last couple of weeks, like like I've seen this lived out so cool, so there's so, so many ways at Crossroads Church. That just last weekend at our outdoor service at Thornton Campus, I was speaking with uh, Dr. Willis. Dr. Willis is a dentist. And he told me, he goes, Matt, over the last several weeks, maybe the last couple of months, he goes, the one thing that God's been speaking to me through you guys is this, that we are to go, that we are to be in this season, the church, out in the world. And he goes, so here's what I started doing. He goes, as I'm like drilling down on people's faces, right, fixing their teeth. He goes, as they're sharing their story with me, if there's a part in the story that the Spirit just prompts me to pray, I just ask them, can I pray with you? And as he's drilling down on their teeth, he he prays for them. And here's the deal, not one person has said no. Not one person. I mean, he's displaying the gospel. He's the light to the nations. There's another woman in our church named Molly. Molly's a part of my uh, community group. And uh, she's fairly new to the faith. And Molly and I, we have this great relationship. We have, man, so cool conversations. And she's trying to figure this all out. She's an amazing photographer, really gifted. She shoots weddings all over the state. She's, she's just really great at what she does. And one of the things that she does to bring light into this world is that she goes to the hospital regularly. And she takes pictures of stillborns so that those families would have pictures of their baby. I mean, talk about stepping into the darkness. Talk about being a light to the world. Molly displays the gospel. My wife, Sarah, she's amazing. She's awesome. God has has given us the opportunity to have many friendships and relationships with people who don't believe the way that we believe. People of different faiths. And anytime something goes wrong in one of these families, they, they reach out to Sarah, the women do, and they talk to her. And, and in the midst of that conversation, as they're sharing whatever story is going sad in their lives at that point, at some moment, Sarah just simply asks the question, where do you find hope? Like as your world's unraveling, where's hope? And the sad thing is, is that very few people have an answer to that. But the cool thing is, is that it gives Sarah an opportunity to share the hope that she has and the reason that she has hope. That in those moments, she's displaying the gospel, that she's the light of the world. Over and over again, 
God gives us opportunity, and the question is, is what does it look like? How are you going to engage being the church as the light of the world? And so we realize that we're all in different spots and all in different levels of, of how do we live this out? How do we live these four weeks out? And so we want to partner with you. We want to make this really easy for you. And so check this out. Hey friends, how you doing? Welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, today we're going to be talking about how to love your neighbor. Practical ways to do that. If you haven't yet, we want to encourage you uh, to grab one of these bags right here. You can go to any of our campuses and it's our way to partner with you to love your neighbors. So let's get into it. We're talking about it in three layers. And what we mean by three layers is this, three different levels of the way you can love your neighbors. So let's start with layer one. Layer one is this, is we wanna invite you to take this dip packet already provided, to run to the store and grab a bag of chips. Maybe you grab some carrots because that's a great healthy option. And what we're gonna invite you to do is take this dip packet, tape it to the bag, and when you tape it to the bag, we also want you to include this invitation. It's a simple gift. It's a simple way for you to introduce who you are to your neighbors. So that's a level one layer dip. Okay, now I want to introduce layer two to you. That's the way for you. Maybe you've known that neighbor just from a distance. You've waved to each other. Maybe you even know them by name. But we want you to take the chips, the dip, and then take the invitation card and say, hey, we want to invite you. We want to invite you over to our home and, and, and that's just like one or two neighbors. So you get an opportunity to introduce yourself, to hang out, have a barbecue in your backyard or your front yard, and just get to know that neighbor or that couple of neighbors better. Now, layer three. Maybe you have a high investment in your neighborhood, right? Like maybe you know your neighbors, you hang with your neighbors, and so this time it's like block party status, yeah! So you get this invitation, you hook it up to here, you throw the dip on, and my suggestion would be probably to buy a couple more of these dips, buy the little snack size bags, that's how I would do it. Take those, deliver it all in the neighborhood and say, hey, block party, our house, this date, this time. So here's a couple ways that we can celebrate together. Number one is this, is that if you're a social media person, we wanna invite you to go ahead and uh, any pictures that you take of that block party or dropping the chips off or having that casual hangout barbecue with a couple neighbors, just go ahead and send that, those pictures to hashtag crossroads LYN. That stands for love your neighbor. As you get to know your neighbors, this is your house right here in the middle or your apartment complex or your condo, begin to write the names of those neighbors in this space and begin to pray for them. Begin to, to uh, think of those neighbors as you walk through the neighborhood and write down their names, write about what you know about them. And that way, as you pray, you will have even more guided conversation with God as you say, God, I'm praying for that person in that blue house. And God, I know you got something really special for them. Use our family as a way to reach that person. I'm so excited, friends. You're going to do a great job loving your neighbors, and I look forward to hearing all the fun stories and all the way that God moves over this next month. All right, so we want to partner with you, just as Trevor said. And so this week, if you want to join with us and live these four weeks out, that you can stop by any one of those campuses, pick up your package, and then start to love your neighbors in that way. 
Look, as we close up today, I know that there are probably a few of you out there who this is the first time maybe that you've ever engaged church, and maybe this is the first time that you've ever heard that God loves you. That God, there's a God out there that loves you more than you can ever imagine. And he sent his son to, to die on the cross for your sins so that you can have life. If you want to make a decision for Jesus today, or if you just want to find out more about who Jesus is, we have people ready to interact with you. And you can simply text the word Jesus to a different number, not the, not the question number, but a different number. That number is 720-513-1933. And we'd love to join with you as you take those steps. Let me pray for you. Father, we're so grateful for the way that you speak to us. Lord, we're thankful for our identity in you. Lord, the way that you love us. And Lord, what you call us to be. And so, Lord, I pray that during this season, as tough as it has been, Lord, that we would not lose sight, that in your sovereignty, Lord, that you have made this an opportunity for us to be the church and to the world in which you have sent us. Lord, we thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.